My name is Anthony. Uh, I'm the pastor here at, at Valley Hope. We're going to be continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I'm going to read the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Uh, at some point, I'll probably just read from Deuteronomy just to give you another a book uh, telling of the Ten Commandments. But then I'll also read from the book of Colossians chapter 1. And all of that will be behind me. You can read along. You can listen. Uh, whatever works best for you. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then from Colossians chapter 1. Where did I say I was going to stop? Okay, good. That's what I thought. Just like this whole chapter, so I couldn't remember where exactly. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for speaking to us. We thank you that your speech did not stop at Sinai. And God, we pray that you would help us who are here gathered in these mountains to hear your voice as your people have always done. God, help our hearts to be open to you. Help us to be released ever deeper into a life of love and freedom in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so we are, we are in commandment number two, as, uh, as most Protestants reckon it. Um, we are talking about the commandment against idolatry, the, the commandment that the people of Israel, that the people of God should not make any image. And you could hear that long list of the images they're not allowed to make, the things that are above the earth or on the earth or in the waters. Don't make any images to bow down to it. We, we call that idolatry. 
Um, and we usually, when we name that as idolatry, in this context, we're, we're talking about a specific kind. They, they would make statues or images and bow down to it. And all that just feels very foreign and old to us. Basically, idolatry uh, is the fuel for museums. Um, we, you can go to buildings to look at very old statues, and a lot of museum fodder is basically just look at all the idolatry. Isn't that cool? All the pictures and all the artwork. Uh, and that's really our only familiarity with this kind of thing. It, it, feels, it feels very foreign. It feels something very much of the past. Um, that is true to some extent. Um, you know, you can go to, you can go to um, ancient Greece and see where idols used to be. There are cultures that still, that still use idols. Uh, I was, uh, I was uh, listening to the story of a friend whose uh, family is of Chinese descent via Vietnam, and he would say that the family altars that they have still would use idols to represent their ancestors, and uh, we just don't see that sort of thing because we live in the West, and we don't have that same sort of history within us. But idolatry is something that is as old as humanity, basically. It's been around a long, long time. There's a reason why museums are full of it. Um, and certainly in the, the time when this was spoken to the people who are hearing it, the, that's the norm. This is the normal way of being a religious person is to have idols. And so when the people of Israel are told, don't make any images that you bow down to, it's really bizarre. It's very strange. How else should you worship a god apart from an idol, apart from a statue? Um, idols make a ton of sense, actually. They don't make sense to us because we misunderstand them. We, we think it's silly to make something with your hands and then bow down and worship it. And to be clear, the scripture also, our scriptures talk about how silly that is, that a carpenter would like cut a log in half and burn half of it and then the other half he'd make into a statue that he worships. There is a kind of silliness to it, but the people who are using idols, they understand that the thing that they are worshiping is not actually the statue. They know that. They, what idols do, though, is it really conveniently locates the gods for you. you. If you have an idol, you never have to be one of the people that asks, I wonder where God is. I wonder what he's doing. I wonder if she will listen to me because I just point to my mantle, and there's God number one, and God number two, and God number three, and look, they're right there, they're all listening to me, and I am really comforted by that. That's it's really helpful. And now the God of Israel is speaking to these Israelites, and he's saying to them, don't make any images of any created thing to bow down to. Don't do that. This is so bizarre. It's very strange. You know, the, um, you, you and I are people who want to worship. We believe this about, about this is something that it is inherent in your humanity. And we 
are here. We're a, we have a particular take on that, on what that means and why we should be worshiping and who we should be worshiping. But worship is a universal human thing. And it may not feel like that is as true in this place and time as it maybe used to be. You probably have people in your life now, or you will soon, who would say that that is not true. They don't, they don't have to worship anything. I would say you, you might be one of those people. You might be somebody who says, that is a craving that I do not have. It is a way to make yourself feel better about living life and being human, but I don't, I don't worship anything. And, and this is where we would want to be very clear about what we mean when we say worship. We can mean this. Right, we can mean coming here and singing songs and doing overtly religious things, but that is a very thin slice of what the word worship means. Worship is the giving of your attention, your affections, your adorations, your hopes, your highest highs of, of ideals, and by whom you recognize everything that is wrong. And so you bring yourself in kind of obedience to this something. Humans do this. Uh, people most obviously do it in the shape of religion, but I have, I have conversations with people who have no religion whatsoever, and yet they worship their intellect, they worship their rationality, they worship pleasure, they worship power, they worship the ability to self-determine. And they may not use the, the language of worship, which I, I recognize. But I would look at what they are doing and I would say, oh, you're religious too. You just have a different God. And it is, I would say, impossible to escape this impulse to worship. And idolatry latches on to this need. It feeds on this desire. And so that whether you are carving a statue out of stone or gold or something, or whether you are living a secular Western religious, a religious life, you will find for yourself an object of worship. And Christians have always said, in interpreting this second commandment, that we find so many other things to put our affections on. You know, this, um, this commandment goes hand in hand with what we call the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods. And when Christians really begin to explore what it means to listen to the second commandment, not to make any other idols, we recognize that we find lots of other things in our lives, usually visible, things that we can put our hands upon, but sometimes invisible, things like people's approval our own ambitions for our life. And we find that our hearts are bowing in subjection to those kinds of things. Christians would say, in affirmation of one of our great theologians, John Calvin, the human heart really is an idle factory. It just can't help but do this thing and make idols. And that we would say is 
speaking more to how you were made. It's not that you were made to, to be an idol factory. It's that you were made to worship. And the human heart will find something to worship. What the God of Israel insists is, you can't worship in this way. That you make something with your hands and put your worship there. But probably, if you think about the Ten Commandments at all, if you've thought about this, that's probably the primary way that you, as a Christian, think about the Second Commandment. What are the things that I worship that I should not worship? However, the vision of idolatry that is in the book of Exodus is a little bit different than that. Fortunately slash unfortunately, the book of Exodus gives us an immediate example of breaking this commandment. Um, in this circumstance, Israel is out in the wilderness, gathered around Mount Sinai. They are hearing these ten words directly. Moses is with them. But very soon after this, Moses is called up to the top of the mountain, and all the people can't even touch the mountain. They have to stay at the bottom. Moses is up at the top. He disappears for days and days and days, weeks. He's up in this cloud. There's like lightning and stuff. It's very scary. And Moses just is not coming back. And they're out in the middle of the desert. They, they followed a cloud there. Nobody has any idea really where they are or what they're doing. Nobody can pull out their phone and say, well, GPS, plot me somewhere else to be. If the guy who led you there is now up in a cloud, what the heck are you going to do? How do you know where the God is? Maybe the God is just like done with you and he's sitting up on the cloud now forever. What are you going to do in the middle of the desert? It'd be really helpful, be really comforting if that God was down here with us. So they make a bull, make a golden calf. And what, they, what they're doing is they are not saying we would like an alternative God. We would like a new God. What they're saying is we would like an image of that God so that we know he's here. See, it's, it is coming from a good desire. They want to hear from that God. They want to be close to that God. But they make for themselves their own way of doing it. Even though after this, in Exodus chapter 20, they said, yes, we're in on this. We will not do this. They heard the command, don't do this thing. And then they're like, this is the thing that I will now do. Even though I've said I will not. It's a, it's a disaster. It's just all a mess, all of it. But that decision, what they do, is, is actually, one, far more reflective of what Christian idolatry actually looks like. It, it is the formation of an image of God in a way that is more useful and acceptable to us. And two, not only is, is it a better picture of Christian idolatry, it's a little more frightening. Now, you and I, I would wager, in a moment of theological, spiritual crisis, have never said, let me just go into the shop and just make a little, little something. Eagle, uh, very polished 
orb of power. Nothing, you've probably never done anything like that, to stand in the place of God. So it's, it's easy to read Exodus chapter 32 and say, those idiots, how, how could they? Those silly children. We're just, we're just maybe both better and worse at what they do there in Exodus chapter 32. Because we, we are inclined to regularly and perpetually make God in our own image. And the frightening thing is, it is so often fueled by good intention. We, we all, so often want to take a, a piece of what is true of God and a piece of our good desires but then we project upon those pieces an image of our own control and of our own doing. Let me give you an example. Um, it was four years ago, three years ago, that those, that crowd of people stormed into the Capitol building. And I, I, I remember listening to the words of so many of those people that went in that were profoundly Christian in some ways. And yet the Christian vision that they had assembled out of pieces was not God. It was the conglomeration of lots of other things that maybe they really believe in. Political convictions, fears or hopes for their families, little pieces of the way that Jesus is, whirled and spun all together. And then guess what this image of this God said that they had made with their own hands? that exactly what they wanted to do, God was now telling them they could do. Isn't that funny how that works? The God that they made approved of exactly what it is they wanted to do. And he exactly, exactly supported their political agenda. It's funny how that happens, that now God is exactly on the same page as them. Well, I know a lot of people in my age, especially younger than me, who are outside of that movement and are seeing that, and what they're seeing is idolatry. They look at that and hear that, and it seems as strange and silly as pulling a, a wood out of the shop, fashioning it into a statue and worshiping it. It looks that silly and nonsensical to them. And yet so many of the people that they've grown up with have called that worshiping Jesus. That now they're re-examining everything about what they believe. Which is understandable because it produced that. But, but then look what happens. I know so many of those people who are doing involved in that work that they might call deconstruction, whatever you might want to call it, reexamination. 
And I listen to their teachers and what they're teaching. And you know what I find is so many of them are describing the images of a God who sounds exactly like progressive Americans. He exactly has the same sexual ethic, political convictions, voting priorities, social priorities, on and on and on. And guess what this new God sounds like? A God who approves of everything that modern American progressives have on their agenda. Just lockstep with them. And suddenly that's the voice of God. And here is the danger of idolatry. This is the power of imagination leveraged upon the invisible God. Because you can make God say whatever it is that you want him to say. And you can make this idol speak exactly the words that you want him to speak so that he will precisely fit your agenda, conservative or progressive. And it is disturbing the religious devotion that so many people give to those idols. The truth, of course, when we can like really think clearly for a moment is, God is not even American. <laughs> he, you can say, who would Jesus vote for in 2024? He would not be allowed to vote. He's not American. He is not particularly invested in the cause of this nation's government, either conservative or progressive. Jesus is not registered with any party and will not be. And any time that you try to spin him into the official spokesperson of your particular party of choice, you are forcing something on to the being of God and then begin the task of idolatry. That's all that that is. And look, you, you can do this with all kinds of ideology. I, I've done it just now with the kinds that are probably most sensitive to the most people in the room right now because it's 2024 and we have deep trauma and we have problems. <laughs> let, let me be a bit more personal, a bit more sensitive. Have you watched The Chosen? This is like the most acceptable Christian question. <laughs> Have you watched The Chosen? The Chosen is good, okay? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not coming for your TV show. I'm not. I've watched it. Look, it's been good for me. Okay, my, my particular making of God into a false image is a, is a God that is, that is cold and rational and removed because he looks a lot like me. And the chosen has been good for me to remember that I am, I am often idolatrous. But you can watch the chosen and you can do the exact same thing 
Because that is not Jesus. It's not. I think parts of how they portray Jesus are very good, accurate. But it's not Jesus. And this is the heart of the second commandment. Is that God is saying to Israel, I'm so much better. I'm so much better than you can imagine. Your imagination is limited. It is puny. It is small in the face of my goodness. Do not dare make for yourself an image because you will end up worshiping something that's far less than I am. The beauty, the miracle of the chosen is that I can watch the chosen and be moved by what I see. And Jesus is better. You know, isn't it interesting that the Gospels never describe for you what Jesus looks like? They never give him a physical description. I'm very confident it's not the Norwegian blue-eyed haloed painting of Jesus that is also an idol. I'm very confident that's not what he looked like, but I also am, am really interested in the fact that the Gospels never tell you how tall he is, how comparatively broad or narrow his frame is, how big or small his nose is, how scarred or not scarred his hands are as a young man the particular shade of his eyes. These are people who followed him and loved him and all of his closeness, and they never thought that his physical description was the most important thing that you needed to know. And yet, the, the early church will be very clear. He is the image of the invisible God. That everything that idolatry hopes to accomplish, he has fulfilled and super exceeded. That my imagination is fixed on the visible and the controllable, the things that look like I want them to look, the things that are the way that I want them to be. And yet when Jesus comes on the scene, the declaration is that this is what God looks like. And it is a vision that you cannot see with your eyes, but you instead must see with the eyes of faith. You must hear with your ears, just as Israel did. And you must see in the center of your heart what is being described and imaged to you. And this is why Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, my prayer for you is that somehow, somehow you would be able to finally imagine how great is the love of God for his people. What is the height and the width and the depth of the love of God is for you? Because we are people who are prone to idol making. 
And it is not a better way. It is an imprisonment. These ten words, these ten commandments are describing to you a life of freedom. And everything that you may want God to be, everything that you would feel more comfortable if God was, it is a constraining of who God actually is and all of his goodness and kindness and all of his breathtaking holiness. See, it doesn't matter what particular brand of political ideology that you follow, how, how wonderful your imagination might be about what you think Jesus look like. It doesn't matter where you are in the devotions that you have to intellectualism or power or anything like that. Jesus is always better than all of it. And no matter how comfortable you find yourself in any of those camps, the ways that you identify yourself, and you just wish that God was totally and completely allied with your own identity, with your own agenda, Jesus will find you wherever you are, and he will just mess with you. He will flip the tables of your own temple over and over again. He will find places of conflict with your particular identity, your particular agenda, and he will always be in conflict with you because you are not as good as him. And every other lesser God that you will make with your hands or with your mind or with your heart, he far outstrips and outshines. Jesus is not going to be drafted in to the agenda that you choose. Because ultimately, if you and I were at the helm of the world, we would drive this thing into ruin. And my evidence for you is the world. My evidence for you is the totality of the human story. It is your life and mine. When my life is driven by a vision of God, which actually looks like my own vision for my own life, people are harmed. I am left isolated and alone. The world is broken and fractured a multitude, a million, a billionfold. Because idolaters can only fashion gods that are as big as your own tiny little imagination. And this is the God of Sinai. This is the God who speaks from the mountain and says to you, don't make any other image. For there is none that can reflect me. Do not bow down, do not worship any other thing, any other statue, any other picture, any other ideology, any other ambition. Because only this God will set you free from slavery. He is the God who is not just the God of Sinai. He is the God of Calvary. Because you and I would never imagine that God would look this way. But in the immensity of his love, he would come to you. And the chief form of his conquest and his revelation would take the form of his suffering and his death for you, his beloved, who moments before were cheering for the execution of the God who failed to live up to your idol. That is what God looks like. And that is why you should worship him and him alone. Because he's the only God who will defy your expectations and your imagination. Forever and ever and ever, he will be better.
than anything that you could hope for. Today, if you're here and you realize you've given your heart over to idolatry, if you realize that you have, maybe as a Christian, with your own agenda, multiplied out the images of God into however you have chosen, and you are being exposed before the law and before the lawgiver, the right response is surrender. Stop. You don't actually want to control God like that. You don't. I know it's scary that God might be more mysterious and more dislocated than you would like. And even if you do not understand him, you have seen enough of him. Stop. Repent. Turn back to him. And today, if you're here and your, your worship is fixed on lots of other gods, you never follow Jesus. I can say to you with confidence that whatever your hope has been in, whatever other idol you may have tried, none of them look like Jesus. He's so much better than you could hope for or imagine. And today, if you hear his voice, he is the God who really and truly speaks. And today he is speaking to you and for you. And if you hear his heart, then come and see what he is describing to you and receive what he has for you. So the, the prescription for us is always the same, believer and skeptic alike. It's come to Jesus. He has so much goodness for you and for me, people who are habitually idolaters. He is so patient, and he is so much better than we can imagine. Do not make for yourself graven images, but come bow down and worship the king. His goodness has been running after you. And here's today before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nobody like you. There's nobody. We acknowledge that we have, we have put our worship lots of other places. And we're sorry. We're not even as sorry as we should be. We've tried to imagine the best of you and fallen short. We have tried to imagine that you fit exactly in the boxes that we would prefer you to be in. We have drafted you into our cause. We have done so many things that you have forbidden, and we're sorry. And you are so much better than all of these other fake gods that we have worshipped. God, I pray for those who are feeling the weight, the punishing weight of these false images of you. God, I pray that everybody who, who's here, who'd be hopeless, that 
God would be far or God would be incomprehensible or God would be scary. They would see the image of who you are and the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And they would just keep coming back and coming home to that reassurance that if you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And God, I pray that you would help us to hear afresh these 10 words, which are for our life and are for our freedom. You are the God who delivers us out of slavery and into freedom. Father, may our hearts be shaped and guided by these 10 words. And may we live freely in this realm of a good life that you've defined. God, I pray for those who are not sure if they're going to follow you, who are just trying to figure out their place in all this. I pray for them the same thing that the scriptures pray for us, that you would help them to understand what is the height and lengths and depths and width of your great love for them in Christ. And that you would conform them in your mercy and your goodness to the image of your beloved son who's rescued them by the power of his cross. God, we thank you for drawing close to us even when we run from you. It is our great hope and comfort. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.